You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Thanks for starting off the season with us here on the 23rd of August. We're going to get right into it with some Delaware football talk. Big news yesterday, Pat Kehoe named the starting quarterback for the Blue Hens for week one. We are, again, one week away from that home opener against Rhode Island, which is an important game, a CAA matchup right off the bat. And it's Pat Kehoe who came into the spring as the third-string, clear-cut third-string quarterback who has risen the depth chart and takes over that starting position to at least start the season. Yeah, and looking at it from our perspective here, we talked about it uh, on when we did our podcast where we ranked uh, the top three breakouts. We were all talking about, like, Caruso, and then maybe Joe Walker gets a pass in here and there. We didn't really know where we sat on Pat Kehoe, but there were uh, notions running around, like, maybe he is as good as we expect him to be. And I think for a team... um, not to beat the dead horse, but a team that's needed a quarterback, that's really needed a solid quarterback, we might have one. I'm not saying he's going to be the best in the CAA. I don't think anyone is expecting that. But I think once you get that solid quarterback, and Caruso with his quote-unquote experience that he had last year is going to be a big help. With Walker's quote-unquote experience, he's going to be a big help. And the defense, a lot of people don't realize how much a defense helps a quarterback that when quarterback has a bad play, let's say he just throws an interception, he comes off to the bench. If the defense can't get a stop, that's all the quarterback thinks about. That's all that's on his head when he's on the bench. Shouldn't have thrown that ball away. Could have kept it. Could have scored. But with this Delaware defense, which is perhaps one of the best in the CAA, if not the best, he's going to have a lot of opportunities. There's going to be a lot of stops. There's going to be a lot of ways for Kehoe to get involved. So I think this guy's limited. I think as a CAA opponent right off the bat, that's even better for him. I think it's time. I mean, it's time for one of these guys to break out. And by that, again, we mean be a league average quarterback, sustain a league average passing attack for the Blue Hens, a team that's been dead last in passing offense in terms of yards per game through the air in each of the past three seasons. You're simply not going to be a playoff contender with that type of dismal passing production from your offense. You don't have to be what Kyle Lalletta gave Richmond last year, what Brian Shore gave James Madison, but you have to be at least solid, especially when you add in those other factors. Like you mentioned, Jake, particularly number one, the defense. You just need to protect the ball, pick up third downs, do the little things to sustain offense for your team, let the running game you know, have some things opened up because you've shown you can at least make that intermediate pass over the middle. Who knows if Pat Kiko can do that, but... He has shown the coaching staff enough to be the first guy to get that chance. And I think when you have three guys right now and Wade, Caruso, and Kehoe who all want that chance, that competition definitely brings out the best in one another. Kehoe has made marketable improvements based on what everybody has said. And I'm looking forward to seeing if he can be that guy. I mean, it, it is by far this time. Again, third work, third straight year last year where they're the worst passing offense If you look at what Joe Walker has done through the air in those couple of years, he averages less than 100 passing yards a game. He had eight touchdowns in his three, two and a half, let's say, years of being a starting quarterback. He had 16 interceptions. You you simply can't have that. And I think Pat Kehoe's in a position where uh, he's definitely set up to succeed, and we'll see what he can bring the team starting with that game against Rhode Island. Yeah, here's the upside with the downside. If Kehoe comes in and blows it, you go to Caruso. I mean— 
if he blows it, you kind of sit in this position like, all right, I mean, that's what we could have had yeah. with Joe Walker. And, right. and they and they very well could have started the season with J.P. Caruso. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of the expectation about halfway through camp when Darius Wade wasn't progressing. It was going to be, okay, it's Caruso and Kehoe's the number two who might get a few cracks at it. And now it's kind of the opposite of that. But you're in no worse position Yeah. Um, if you go to J.P. Caruso in week two or three. And at this point, you're not in a, not in a better position either because we haven't really seen anything. Yeah. I mean – so what's what's the loss of playing him? I don't think I think your your benefit can be far greater starting Kehoe because if he is um, better than both Caruso and Walker, you're good. But if he's worse, like we just said, so what? Move on to the next one. You got time? Yeah, I mean you have to win this one against Rhode Island first and foremost because it's a CAA game and it's a CAA game at home against a team that has. Not been respected in preseason polls. They're picked to finish 12th of 12 teams in the conference. But I think you can do that with subpar quarterback play. I mean, last year, a similar team, you know, Delaware State, last year's season opener, is a better, or is a worse team, excuse me. Rhode Island's a better team than Delaware State is, but they're not that much better. And that was a game that I think was 10 to 3 going into halftime and had very inconsistent quarterback play from Joe Walker in it, and the Blue Hens won 22 to 3. So I think with poor quarterback play in game one, they'll have enough to still pull out the win. But that's all that you kind of need in week one. And then weeks or games two, three, and four, you know, those games don't really matter a whole lot. You can you can take chances and give Pat Kiko opportunities. And if they don't work out for that North Dakota State game, you can maybe go to J.P. Caruso to get him ready for the slate of CAA play. Um, so, so, you know, good for Pat Kiko to get this first opportunity and – We'll see. Um, well, kind of have to be in wait and see mode. But he'll get the first crack at it when the Blue Hens kick off against Rhode Island at 7 on Thursday of next week. Uh, you're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage 91.3 WVD and WVD HD1 Newark. Jake Lampert with Brandon Halvak talking Delaware football here on the cage. Blue Hens had a new look in a few different ways on Tuesday. At the quarterback position, they'll have a new look. But they also had quite literally a new look when they had a open practice at Delaware Stadium a couple nights ago. Blue pants have been added to the wardrobe for the Hens for the 2018 season. They were worn with both the blue jersey and the white jersey. Jake, do you want to be our resident fashion expert and give us a breakdown here? Yeah, sure. Um, I was comparing this to a lot of the things I saw from Gucci, and um, I I don't really like it. I'm not a fan. I don't like the blue pants. Mm. Uh, I think that clashes a little too much. Uh, obviously, the blue hens with their blue jerseys, the numbers in the back are gold. The letters in the front are gold. Helmets that same uh, predominantly blue with a gold kind of slash on the top. I think it's too much blue. I get it. With the blue hens, but we're blue. blue and gold. Let's get a little gold in here. I, that's why I like the gold pants. I think they looked really good with the uniforms. With the blue on blue, I'll be honest, it's it's hard to catch my eye. It's hard. It's you look like a blueberry. That's a, I'm just gonna put it out there. I don't. I'm I, I'm taking the resident fashion expert. I'll reach out to my uh, friends who people. are fashion majors, and I'll have my people contact your people. But if you sat me down and said, Jake, you have the vote. Is Delaware in blue pants or the gold pants? Gold every day of the week. Every day of the week. Every day of the week. What about what about white jersey with blue pants? More okay, okay. with that. That's A where the eyes okay light up. Yep. Yeah, yep. I that's think, that's what I like personally. Yeah, because it's not too much blue. It's I mean, I'm I'm looking at some of the pictures now. Uh first of all, the quarterbacks wearing the red jerseys. That just looks terrible, but luckily they don't have to wear those come game day. Uh the white jerseys 
give you a little contrast. It's not just all blue. Yeah. You have the I think also the white jerseys standalone look better than the blue jerseys. That's just that's just my perspective. Um, but okay. I think as a whole, the white jersey, blue uh, pants with the blue and gold helmet, suppressed for success right there. Yeah. Do you want to look intimidating? That's what you want to look at. Which which is a better combination? White jersey, gold pants, the traditional look. Mm-hmm. Or has the white jersey blue pants eclipsed it? Because, you know, it could be just that we haven't seen this uniform, so it's fresh and it's nice and new. But I've never been a huge fan of the white with the gold, but I'm I'm digging the, the white with the blue. I don't know exactly what it is, maybe because the numbers match the blue a little bit more. The, you know, the accents line up a little bit better. You still get a little yellow on the side of the blue pants. But your thoughts on the away combinations? Just want to remind everyone, you are still listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage. We are transitioning <laughs> to Blue Hen Fashion Cage for a little bit as we talk about the Delaware Blue Hen's new uniform switching from their gold to the blue. I think white and blue looks better than white and gold. I think the white jersey and blue pants looks just cleaner. Uh, the white and gold, I think we needed some of that dark tone, and I think the blue really plays a good role in that. But you're out on all blue. Oh, God. Um, yeah, no. Uh, I, I'll show up to the game because I'm going to do the games. It's a requirement of mine. Right. But besides that, I'm not going there for the jerseys. I'll say that all right. Like, you want me there? Put on the white and the blue, and I'll be happy. Be a happy man. They've also made some slight modifications to the jersey tops in the lettering and the numbers to try to make them a little bit more readable, which I'm also looking forward to because when they first introduced that, it's almost like an italic number. In 2015, when Adidas took over the uniforms and every all the gear for the university across the board, they switched the numbers, and they're a little bit more difficult to read than your typical block lettering, especially compared to what the Blue Hens had in previous years. Like if you look at Joe Flacco wearing a uniform, it's a very, very basic blue with a big five gold block. So the numbering is supposed to look a little bit cleaner and be easier to read from the stands, which I think is a welcome change across the board for everybody. Uh, But taking this kind of to a more serious level, this is out of character for this university. They've had a black, or excuse me, a blue and gold look forever for, you know, almost almost 75 years of this team. Hitting up 75. Uh, So it is a departure to introduce something new. It's also in a time where Oregon has 75 uniform combinations every year, and it sometimes plays a role in how high school juniors and seniors view your program and plays into their decision on one school over the other based on their look and all the different things that they can do with the uniform. So taking all of those things into account from a more philosophical standpoint where do you stand as far as introducing new elements of the uniform, changing the uniform that has been in various forms a staple here at the University of Delaware dating back to the 1940s and 50s? I think it puts us up a level in football seriousness. And I don't think uh, changing a football jersey puts you from a, oh, yeah, we, I mean, we have a football team to like, oh, football, everything, football, everything. Putting that extra, I guess, effort is the word, putting that extra effort into getting a new jersey, getting a new look, shows people that we actually want this team to play well 
and look good while they do it. That whole cumulative effect of, I mean, we're, a new stadium is coming into effect. Mm-hmm. We have renovated or, or yeah. renovated stadiums coming into effect. We have a pretty new look team. I mean, two years ago, I don't think anyone really could have predicted, would have been deserved, but no one could have predicted the team where it would be right now. And New Jersey's. So if I'm a high school senior looking at this, I don't see it as like it was two years ago, a stagnant as a whole football team. I see it as a university as a whole advancing in a lot of different facets of the game. And I think that's intriguing, like you mentioned. And I think it does help. I think it's pretty big for these incoming um, juniors and seniors to see a team putting all these steps in the right direction because now I'm excited that I can be a part of this changing in jerseys, changing in stadiums, changing in teams. I think it's a positive. Yeah, I think it's a small part of that equation that you put together as far as the investment in the program, the stadium, and so forth. But I also don't think you know there's any downside to this if your sole goal, which it should be when you think about some sort of change like this, if your sole goal is attracting high school students to your school. It might upset some of your longtime fans. It might upset season ticket holders, so forth. But those aren't the people you're trying to attract with with your look of your program in this particular way. You're trying to attract kids in high school, and I think this only helps do that uh, and moves them closer to that goal. We had a couple minutes here before our first break on Blue Hen Sports Gauge on WVUD. Last year, Blue Hens 7-4, and four, obviously missed out on the playoffs, extending their playoff drought now to seven seasons dating back to 2010. They were very close, had two chances in the final four games of the season to solidify an eight-win season that would have all but assuredly put them in, but they dropped games to Towson and Villanova, which they were favored in. Jake, not asking for any type of prediction yet. We still have a lot of time before we get to that first game, and we'll be you know, talking about it a lot more as we lead up to it. But from a, you know, zoomed out perspective and overall sense, you know, what's your feeling of the expectations for this team as we sit here one week out from game one? I think that if this team misses the playoffs again this year, I think it will be exponentially more disappointing than missing the playoffs last year. Yep. I think that they could have made the playoffs last year, but they could have not allowed Towson to score a game-winning touchdown in the corner of the end zone. So, a both, one-handed. Yeah, both <laughs> ways to put it right there. Um, but if they don't make it this year, because I don't assume that I don't assume their record really gets that much worse. Uh, I think it gets better. But if they don't make it this year, I think there's going to be a big look at this team and say, "What went wrong? Like, what do we have to do?" And there might be a lot of moving and shaking to try and get this team back on track. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We didn't miss a whole lot in Delaware Athletics, to be honest, over the summer, but there are a few topics that we wanted to make sure we cover as we lead into not only the football season this fall, but all of the other sports this fall and some of the sports in the winter. Uh, First off, just a note, Jen Steele named softball head coach, yet another head coach hiring for the university. Uh, The former head coach had resigned at the end of the spring. They bring in Jen Steele. We also had a swimming and diving new head coach announced in May. So, you know, constantly things changing here. New looks for a lot of the teams, not just football with Danny Rocco or men's basketball with Martin Inglesby. We've had almost a full reversal of head coach or, I guess, exchange, if you will, of head coaching positions 
in recent years here at the University of Delaware. Um, the women's basketball team recently came back from a trip to Spain where they played in a couple of international exhibitions there, and obviously they also toured the country of Spain. So that is something that you know is a little out of the ordinary for that team, but be interesting to see what they pull from that experience as we get a chance to talk to them leading into their winter season. And we can imagine that bringing that whole team there as a whole kind of just ties them a little together, brings them closer together. This is the team that played well. I don't think anyone is here saying that they didn't play good basketball. They could have played better basketball, but they're coming back with um, all of their starters and all but one of their bench active bench players uh, for this upcoming year. So they have the same team, uh, more chemistry, more tight-knit, and I think we'll be excited to see what they took from that trip. And a couple new freshman acquisitions, too, that should play a role. Three very talented freshmen, uh, Jasmine Dickey, Paris McBride, and Lolo Davenport coming into the program. So a lot of returning faces for us to discuss throughout the end of October and early November, but also a couple new faces that we'll get to meet and get accustomed to as Natasha Adair leads into her second year as women's basketball head coach. The field hockey team just a few days ago was ranked number nine in the NFHCA preseason poll. That's the national top 25 for collegiate field hockey. Last year in the same poll, the Blue Hens finished number seven. They lost in the first round of the NCAA tournament 2-1 to one in overtime to Penn State after winning their fifth consecutive CAA title. What do you think of the number nine ranking for the Hens to start the year? I think it's appropriate because coming off that national championship, they were good, like we said, CAA champion. They didn't look as clean in the playoffs, um, but I think it's fair. They are still a team that will probably win the CAA, barring any um, right. extreme case. If is on the field, yeah, you'd we think should they be win okay. the CAA. And... Um, I think nine is fair, and they play their first game, I believe, either tomorrow or the next day is their first game of action. So we're going to get right into field hockey there. Uh, next week's show, we'll definitely have a field hockey segment. We'll talk about how the team looked and such. Yep, we, we just on a, another programming note, we, have, well, we will have reduced coverage of field hockey this fall. We won't have quite as many games on the air as we did last year and the year before, obviously two years ago, the national championship year. Uh, this year, we kind of our aim is to dedicate a little bit more of our attention and focus to Delaware football. If you probably might be thinking, if you're a field hockey fan, is that possible to give Delaware football any more notice? Might maybe it is. So, um, we'll, we'll be kind of dedicating more of our resources there. But we will still have a few field hockey games throughout late October, and we will definitely have postseason coverage if the CAA tournament is at Delaware, which we anticipate it will be if the Blue Hens are the number one team, which they are expected to be again in the CAA. So we will have those important postseason and late season games. We will not have every single home game as we did last year. More information on our game broadcast will be coming out shortly at WVUD.org under the sports tab. Uh, but the Blue Hens ranked ninth nationally, another top 10 ranking for the Hens heading into the 2018 season. Safety Nasir Adderley and linebacker Troy Reeder, both seniors, were named to the Stats FCS preseason 
All-American team a couple of weeks ago. The Blue Hens were also ranked 15th in the Stats FCS Top 25 poll. Your thoughts on Adderley and Reader being preseason All-Americans? Deserving. Um, We've talked about Troy Reader uh, a bunch of times, uh, both him and his brother. I think that's fair. And Adderley has kind of taken that role of defensive captain, especially uh, in the past blocking development uh, area. And he has made, he had two, not that this really means anything for preseason All-American, but two ESPN top 10 plays last year, specifically the one against Towson, which was absolutely jaw-dropping. Um, better better top 10 play. Nasir Adderley, one-handed interception against Towson, or Jamie Jarman is flip. flip into the end zone against Richmond? I'm going to give it to Adderley. I think Jarman I was a, um, a subject to a hit. I think he got hit and then... Kept going on the flip, which was great. It looked it looked cool, but skill wise, I mean, you see Odell, you saw his catch. It was it's very similar. Part, it was right there. It was similar, and it was a great catch. I think it's great that they're both uh, preseason All Americans, and I think both of them will play just like it this year. Adderley Reader and tight end Charles Scarf, running back Kenai Kane, and offensive guard Mario Farinella were named preseason All-CAA selections a couple of weeks before the All-American team came out. Adderley and Reader, I think we'd agree, based off the All-American selections, no-brainer for All-CAA selections. But the other three, a little bit surprising to me to see Scarf, Kane, and Farinella to get that recognition. There are no first, second, and third preseason All-CAA teams. It's just one preseason team. Yeah, And Mario Farinella in particular is a guy who was not a regular starter on the offensive line last year. He actually played on the defensive line for a couple of weeks when the Blue Hens needed a backup defensive tackle. The year before last year, he was injured in week one and did not play the rest of the season. And the year before that, he was a backup. He played a little bit, got a couple starts, including one against North Carolina, but was not a regular starter. So here's a guy who's never gone through a full season as a regular starter. We don't really know what he can do. We've been told he's talented and that he's one of the better guys on this offensive line coming back that has lost two starters from last season, Jake Trump and Brody Kern. But, I mean, you got to be surprised that he's a preseason All-CAA selection. Typically, these are just the top guys based on last year's stats who are coming back. You look at, okay, passing leaders, okay, Shore and Laletta are gone. Who's third? Trevor Knight. He's All-CAA quarterback. Running back, you look at it, Kenai Kane was third-team All-CAA last year. Two guys ahead of him graduated. He's preseason All-CAA. Mario Farinella did not play at all. So, I mean, surprising, to say the least, that he's preseason All-CAA. Not to say that he's not talented and that he can't be All-CAA status by the end of the year, but based on what his resume of work, surprising to see him there. Same with Charles Scarf. I mean, yep. another... Delaware football segment on Blue Hen Sports Cage. Another opportunity we get to talk about how Charles Scarf was disappointing. He was bad. And there it is. Just straight up. He was. He had a good catch uh, against Richmond in a double overtime victory. And pretty much besides that, had a spot here and there. He was disappointing. 12 catches, 71 yards last season. That's pretty disappointing for somebody that is now on the uh, preseason All-CAA team. Again, like you said, Farinell. Not that he's not talented, because we hyped him up a lot last year. We knew his talent. We knew his ability. Didn't come through in that. He's still a talented player. Don't know if he's preseason all-CAA talented, but we're just going to have to wait and see on that. 
Yeah, and, you know, inconsistent quarterback play is obviously a factor in all of the receivers' last lack, lackluster numbers. Even Jamie Jarman, who we'll talk about later when we rank our top 10 Blue Hens players, was just over 300 receiving yards to lead the team last year. So that's, you know, that's the top grade on this team is 328. So 71 in comparison is still not great, but it's not quite as bad as it sounds off the bat, but it's still not impressive. And, you know, he also, you have to think about the contributions a tight end makes in the pass and run blocking game as well, but definitely surprising to see him there on that list. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. And again, to give you a sense of of the top returners to this team, we decided to do a ranking. We're going to rank the top 10 Delaware players, any position, any grade, freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors, coming into the 2018 season. And this might be a recurring segment where every couple of weeks we do a top five or top 10 ranking of really anything across the world of sports um, as we move on here through the fall season on Blue Hen Sports Cage. So Jake and I independently came up with top 10 list, and then we weighted them by a measure of 20 points, or excuse me, 40, 20 points, 20 points for the first place person on each of our ballots going down to one point for the 10th place person. And we added those scores up to come up with a combined top 10 uh, for Delaware football. So first I'll run through the players that, We'll consider honorable mention players that were on Jake and I's list but don't make the top 10 as we didn't pick the same 10 players for our list. Uh, so those players, in no particular order, would be running back Dejon Lee. Uh, he made Jake's list at number 10, did not make my list. Quarterback Pat Kehoe, he made Jake's list at number 9, did not make my list. Defensive end Cam Kitchen, he made my list. Number 10, I was thinking about Joe Walker, who made your list. I was thinking about Kareem Williams, who didn't make any list. Went with Cam Kitchen. And Nick Pritchard, number nine on my list, the punter. You got me thinking specialist. We talked about Frank Rago a little bit before the show. And who I is thought, on the list. Frank Rago is on the list. And you got me thinking about Pritchard, who I thought did a really nice job last season. Um, 25 of his 69 punts inside the 25-yard line. Um, but... Not surprised. He's an honorable mention. It was number nine on my list. Now into the actual list. I'm going to run through 10 through 7, and you tell me what stands out to you. Number 10, Joe Walker, the quarterback turned wide receiver. Eight passing touchdowns, 16 interceptions in his career. But two catches for over 100 yards against Maine last year. Completed a pass for 42 yards. Ran for 55 yards. Huge potential this year. I like that pick. Yeah. I there's a few thing about yeah, Joe right. Walker. Um, I think he's almost a ha- he has to go on this list for talent wise. He's a talent that we really don't have on this Delaware team. Somebody who can do it all. Someone who's strong. He's a fast body. He is smart with the football. Like I said, I remember I quoted it. Not necessarily throwing the football, but holding the football, especially running and receiving. I think he's just done enough for this team, and there's just so much potential for this team that he almost had to go on the list. Tied for eighth, safety Malcolm Brown and kicker Frank Rago. And then number seven, outside linebacker Ray Jones, converted from safety to the bandit linebacker role this year. Uh, Also, not surprising, two of those four guys on our breakout candidates list, Ray Jones and Joe Walker. 
Anybody stand out to you in 7 through 10? Besides Joe Walker, we're going to go kicker. We're going to go Frank Racco. And as we were looking through players, I kind of asked Brandon, like, is it crazy to put Frank Racco on the top 10? And Brandon kind of was like, no, it's, you can put him on there. I think he's deserving. Uh, I don't know where you specifically ranked him on your top 10. I put him number 8. Okay. And he came in on, on your top 10, seven. number 7. Yep. So just about where we both ranked him. He's been the consistency for this Blue Hen team. He's missed a few kicks uh, here and there last year. field goals. Extra points, 74 for 75 in his career on extra points. He's pretty much automatic from that uh, neck of the woods, and I do remember that extra point that he missed. I want to say it was against Stony Brook. He he didn't miss one last year. It might have been a a short field goal. Two years ago. Yeah, Yeah, it would be two years ago. He was 28 for 28 last year. Um. Uh, but, but I think he's just been that consistent factor. And yeah. talking about best players, you need to put your consistencies. Yeah, he's absolutely dependable. Uh, let's go through the next three. Tied for fifth, we had wide receiver Jamie Jarman and linebacker Charles Bell. And then at number four, running back Kanai Kane, another one of our breakout candidates. Uh, Charles Bell was actually one that I forgot, that I just tried to forgot on my list. Um I believe he's a fifth-year player. Yep. Um, and re-ranking, I probably would have put Charles Bell on my list. I don't think I would have put him uh, at fifth. I would probably float him around the eight or nine range, but Charles Bell definitely uh, just as deserving. But the one that sticks out to me the most is Jamie Jarman. He was the wide receiver two come the start of last year, or at least penciled in as the wide receiver two as a starter uh, started for last year, and basically surpassed every expectation we had of him. He's become a top target. He's become a reliable target. Um, for uh, relative to Blue Hen standards. So I like him. I like him as a fifth spot, and I think it kind of fits him well. Yeah, for me, you got to do a little bit more than 327 receiving yards to get on my top 10 list when there are this many good defensive players. That's why I left Jamie Jarman off. Um, Again, we talked about earlier in the show with Charles Scarf, how much of that is on the quarterback versus how much of it is on these receivers. It's tough to say, as the quarterback play has certainly been inconsistent, and they haven't had enough sustained passing attack to really throw the ball more than 10, 15 times in a lot of the games last season. So they're simply not getting that many opportunities to reel in passes down the field. Uh, but Jimmy Jarman did not make my list. He's very athletic, but I, I need to see a little bit more uh, just production, sheer production from him before I can feel comfortable with calling him the clear-cut number one receiver. Charles Bell, to me, was actually very high on my list. He came in number three, and there's going to be question mark as far as his play level of play this year because of the injury he, he sustained last season. It was a scary injury. Came in the fourth game of the season against James Madison. It was a, he had a, like a spinal procedure of some sort. I don't know the exact particulars off the top of my head. But there were question marks on whether he'd step on a football field again. He's got himself back into playing shape. He's been practicing this fall. Before the injury, he was a first-team All-CIA selection as a junior. And for a while, he was considered the top linebacker on this team, a team that had Troy Reader also joining him in the middle. So I did put Reader ahead of him. I have Colby Reader on my list just below him. I think all three of those guys are very close. There's question marks with Bell because of the health, but if he's healthy, he's, in my opinion, he's still one of the best players on this team. Uh, let's go through the top three. We actually had a tie at number two. The Reader brothers, Troy and Colby, tied at number two. Troy Reader came in. Fourth on your list, Jake, he was second on my list. Colby Reader, the opposite. He was second on your list, and he was fourth on my list. 
And for those, when we talked about it on the show, who's better, Troy, Colby? Doesn't matter anymore. They're both tied at second with 30 points. So I think they're both, um, you can put either of them at number uh, at number two and one at number three. I'd be okay with it. You can switch it around. I'd be just okay with it, just as much okay with it as I was the other way. Uh, both of them are forces. And forces that, on a defense that is perhaps the best in the CAA, you need. And we talked about the readers uh, on our breakout. I don't think there's anything more to say to them that besides that they're forces on the defensive end. They've done it all. Sacks, forced fumbles, interceptions. Kind of hard not to put them as high as we did. The number one player on our list, safety, Nasir Adderley. A FCS preseason All-American selection. An All-CAA guy the last year after converting from cornerback to safety. He's got the highlight plays. Nasir Adderley, named by Jake Lampert and I officially on August 23rd as the best player on the Blue Hens heading into 2018. Going to get some NFL looks. Our, pretty, I think, only unanimous or and pick that we both had in the same spot goes to Nasir Adderley. Um, kind of the same as the readers. I mean, defensively leads that pass-blocking core to a T. He's, uh, again, our pass-blocking core that has been injury-depleted um, for almost every yeah. game that we can remember. You think about last year, loss of Justin Watson in Week 1, uh, question marks here and there in the past couple of years with Malcolm Brown's health. He was healthy last year, but in years past hadn't been. Um, even back in the safety area, you know, they were playing Ray Jones in different spots. You had Casey Hinton back there at times. Having that versatile piece in Adderley, I mean, obviously some credit goes to Nigel Hill, got Tenny Adelusi, guys like that who filled in for Watson. But having that piece like Adderley, it's got to be a factor in how they were able to keep the back end of that defense up, up alive. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. We are excited to come back here, and the next segment that we're going to pick up on is one that has a lot of conversation, but also has a lot of clear cuts. Uh, and this is the MLB picks for AL and NL MVP, uh, AL and NL Cy Young, and AL and NL Rookie of the Year. Brandon, is there one that you particularly want to start out with out of these three? Let's go Rookie of the Year and work our way back to MVP. Rookie of the Year for the AL, I think, is not necessarily clear cut as to player, but it's clear cut as for team. I think both of those players are either going to come off of the New York Yankees team, uh, whether you pick it to be Glaber Torres, who has been pretty much unreal, or you can say it's uh, Miguel Andujar, which alongside him, they've been hitting both of them over 275, clocking homers left and right. Uh, if I had to flip a coin, I'm going to give it to Glaber Torres. I agree. Uh, but I don't really have uh, disdain for the either on the two. Yeah, I'm going to go with Torres between the two, but... You had it exactly right. Those are 1A and 1B. For the National League, I think, again, it's pretty clear-cut. And that goes to, uh, actually, you know what? I'm not going to say it's pretty clear-cut. Up to this point, I thought it was going to be Juan Soto of the Nationals. But after the last week and a half or so, um, where Ronald Acuna, pretty much all he did was hit home runs, it was a string of six games or seven games, and I think he hit a home run in all seven of them. Or, sorry, a home run in six of the seven of them. A um, bunch of them being leadoff home runs until he was clocked in the arm uh, when he played against Miami. I'm going to go with Acuna here. I think he outseats Juan Soto. Soto's been hitting great. He's over 300, 18 or something home runs. But I think as a whole, and I think I hate doing this, but 
he's done more on a winning team, I'm going to give it to Ronald Acuna. Both of these guys are very talented players, and the Nationals and Braves fan bases should be very happy to have them. When you look them up on Fangraphs, the first headline for Ron Soto is, he might be the best teenage hitter ever. And then the first headline for Ronald Acuna is, Ronald Acuna is doing something nobody's ever done before. Uh, so both of these guys are in rare air. Soto, just to highlight him for one second, is 19 years old and hitting 291 this season. He's getting on base. He's become the cleanup hitter in short time for the Nationals, uh, especially with Daniel Murphy now on his way out. 15 home runs uh, for Soto this year. Acuna has 20, uh, but the the average is right there. You know, as terms of wins above replacement, they're both 2.6 uh, in Fangraphs measure at least. So they're they're right there. One A and one B, sort of like Torres and Andujar. Um, and I, I would have to dig in a little bit more to be definitive in who I say. I will go with Acuna right now, but this one for me is still up in the air. I think uh, this last month and a half of play will be a big factor. And to me, you know, when you think about these two teams, what's the difference? Well, the Braves right now lead the National League East. I don't factor that in at all. I think we have enough statistical measures in baseball to separate individual success from team success, and there are way too many factors for team success outside of just one individual. You know, it's the same reason why the Angels have never made the playoffs with Mike Trout. Um, So that doesn't really provide a deciding factor if you were thinking that at home. Um, So I'll go Cunha for now, but that one for me is still very much TBA. Yeah, uh, and one more point to add to that is that the Washington Nationals um, fan base, like you said, they should be proud to have them, but they also can give a huge just exhale of of stress because of this whole, uh, will we have Bryce Harper in the future? Are we still going to have Bryce Harper? What, what's what's going to happen when Bryce Harper leaves? Right. But when Bryce Harper leaves, you still have somebody who I don't think is at that Bryce Harper level of just, wow. But I think he's right below it. I think Juan Soto is going to be a success. I think he gives that Nationals fan base something else to grab onto as their fire sale is slowly beginning. It's kind of a resting point for a lot of their fan base, which I think um, not many teams could talk about. Yeah. Soto is not quite the power hitter that Bryce Harper is, but he's been much more efficient this year, and he gets on base a lot more often. That's a great point. You think about Juan Soto as well as Victor Robles, their top prospect in their system, who has moonlighted a couple times for a week here or there with the Nationals, but has yet to really have a sustained period with the team. Those two guys in the outfield provide you with a pretty solid core for the future there, in addition to Adam Eaton, who they acquired from the White Sox before, not this season, but the previous one. It's still a decent outfield, and you know I talked with Teddy Gumman about this a couple weeks ago. If Bryce Harper goes, I don't think it significantly changes the outlook for the Nationals. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I still think they're right in the same category heading into next year, led by a really good pitching staff and a mediocre offense, and they'll they'll be in the conversation for eighty to ninety wins and probably fall short of the playoffs. Yep. Let's start with. I mean, both of these, Cy Young, I was trying to think of which one would be a little bit quicker, but both of these conversations are loaded. They're stacked. Yeah. Let's go AL first. American League, Cy Young. Um, I want to give it to Chris Sale. I really do. Chris Sale has been just about as unreal 
as Unreal gets, uh, especially on the Boston Red Sox team. But I'm actually going to pick a name that might not be a household name for a lot of people, and that's Trevor Bauer. Bauer. Yep. Uh, this is a guy who just strikes people out. He's loaded. Uh, he had an injury. I don't know how he is right now. He's he's on the DL right now. He's expected to come back at some point in September, but it's definitely a situation to monitor um, because you know part of the reason why Chris Sale has fallen out of favor in a lot of voters' mind is because he's been on the DL yeah, now yeah. twice. So he's a decent. He's he's about twenty innings behind Trevor Bauer right now, um, but. If Bauer gets hurt too, that'll fact, or if Bauer stays out for a pl- prolonged period of time, that'll factor in too. But go, yeah, yeah. You so can finish your point. I'm gonna give it to Trevor Bauer here. I think. I mean, Sale leads at this point, uh, ERA and strikeouts, I believe. Um, but what I see from Bauer is just uh, kind. I'm gonna swap sports here, but it's kind of like that Tom Brady effect where you you put up better and better and better and better and better that the next year you have to be better than that or else people don't look at you as high. And I think that's going to kind of affect Chris Sale. Chris Sale has just been better, 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 better. And I don't think this year is so much better than his previous ones that will garner him enough votes. That's why I think Trevor Bauer, who kind of bursted onto the scene as this this arm Definitely in, in the, the Cleveland Indians yeah. team, um, I think that he should win the Cy Young based on fan favor and voter favor. I'm going to go with Corey Kluber for the American League Cy Young because of the time missed due to injury for Chris Sale. And I think Trevor Bauer will fall into that same category too because I feel if right now if everybody pitched 200 innings each, Chris Sale to me would be the guy. 1.97 ERA, 13 and a half strikeouts per nine innings pitched. Absolutely dominant. But he hasn't pitched enough pitches to to make that so, and or excuse me, enough innings. And Trevor Bauer, I think, is going to fall into that same camp. Again, if, if it was just Sale who was injured and not Bauer, I would go Bauer. But then that brings in the third candidate for me, which is Kluber, whose ERA is not quite as impressive as those two. It's 2.74, which by no means is bad, but it's not the 1.97 ERA of Sales or the 2.2 ERA of Bauer. And he's also a decent bit behind those guys in wins above replacement. But I think he's going to catch up in this this coming month. The Indians, one, are going to lead on him heavily. He's been on a big hot streak through the second half of the season. And he's, I mean, he's just, he's always a solid pitcher. You, you never see a Corey Kluber stat line of five earned runs, four earned runs. Right. And I think over this next course of play, if Bauer and Sale stay out, if his ERA falls into the two four two five area, and he has thirty forty more innings pitched than those guys, I think he comes into the conversation and becomes a realistic candidate. Other people to look out for: uh, Blake Snell from Tampa Bay, um, Garrett Cole, Garrett Cole, obviously Justin Verlander. It's pretty not. It's pretty hard to say Justin Verlander doesn't deserve uh, at least a yeah. A, and I a think thought. I think in my situation, if Bauer and Sale don't have enough innings pitched to clearly win the award. I think it's Verlander versus Kluber. Right, which um, in any other year is two of the best pitchers in baseball battling against each other. Right. Let's go to the National League. Who do you have as your National League Cy Young Award winner? Give me Jacob DeGrom any day of the week. Um, he has been the best pitcher in baseball, period. 
His ERA forever has been the best in baseball. He has one of the lowest hard hit rates, wins above replacements, uh, fielding runs in the pitching position. I think the wins is the one thing that's going to drag him down. He's on pace to win 10 wins. The Mets are playing better baseball, hitting the ball more, but and he will be pitching tonight. Um, but the wins is what's going to slow him down. Yeah, and I, I, frankly, I don't care about wins, losses. He's the best pitcher in the National League. You go through a season, 200-plus innings pitch for the 1.71 ERA, you're the Cy Young, yeah. period. I mean, unless somebody else has got 1.5, uh, you're the guy, and right now he's been absolutely dominant. By far leads all pitchers in fan graphs wins above replacement with 6.6 wins. That's Unreal. one and a half wins more than any position player in the National League, which will lead us into our next conversation in a couple of moments. But that's also not to say that Max Scherzer and even Aaron Nola don't have a case which is crazy. in the National Both League. Of them, because, if yeah. Jacob deGrom was not playing baseball this year, both of them could win Cy Young. If Max Scherzer was not winning baseball, Nola and DeGrom can win Cy Young. These three people are so close together. I think Aaron Nola has that Trevor Bauer effect where you really weren't expecting him to come out and do this. And he was – at one point, he was 12-3 and three with some crazy number of, uh, for strikeouts per nine. I don't know if it's kind of the leveled down a little the more. The strikeouts have dropped, but he's 14-3 yeah. and three on the season, 2.24 ERA. Which is – Pretty much right there, a Cy Young Award winner. Winner, Max Scherzer's Max Scherzer doesn't really don't really need any I mean, more explanation. His, on Max Scherzer. his line is absolutely ridiculous right. too. A two point one one ERA, twelve strikeouts per nine innings pitched. He gives up less than a home run every game. Doesn't leave guys on. I mean, he's absolutely insane too. So in both leagues, but I think especially the National League, it's like there. are there are four or five candidates that right. in any other year we'd be talking about them up near the top. But in such a pitcher's league, these guys can throw 99 for seven, eight, nine innings, and it's incredible. Yeah, and I think what we're starting to see is that removal of wins. Uh, Felix Fernandez is the lowest win uh, for a Cy Young winner. He was 13-12 and 12 in his Cy Young campaign. Jacob deGrom, uh, assuming he wins out, will be probably around 12-7 and seven would be his final record. Um, Max Scherzer, if he wins out, he will he might hit the 20-win threshold. Uh, and Aaron Nola, if he wins out, he'll be on the 16, 17, 18 range for his wins. Um, I don't know. He'll probably, have, he'll, he'll probably be a little higher on that uh, scale. But I think both of us can agree that wins shouldn't really be the defining factor. Um, but as a whole, I don't think voters are there yet. I don't think voters are at the point where scrape wins, just go ERA, just go the important stats. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark. A few moments before our next break, let's go to the National League MVP first because my pick's going to be the same as it was for the National League Cy Young, and I'm going to go with Jacob deGrom. Um, there isn't a clear-cut position player for the award if there is a leading candidate. To me, it's Nolan Arenado, the third baseman for the Colorado Rockies. But like I said a moment ago, you look at Fangraph's wins above replacement. DeGrom is far ahead of him, 1.1, or excuse me, one and a half wins uh, above Arenado, which is a sizable margin. He's a guy that you march out there on a contending team, you know, a team with a decent offense, not a great one, a decent offense. Every fifth day, you get a win from Jacob deGrom. And when it's that automatic that he's holding the opponent to one 
0.7 earned runs in the game, to me that is more valuable than the position players that are in the field in the National League. So he's crossed that threshold um, to take the pitching performance to the next level. If it was a typical Cy Young year, you know, two and a half ERA, eight strikeouts per nine innings pitch, that doesn't really get in the conversation for me. But he's done enough, and he's gone way over and far exceeding anything that people have done in recent years, really since Clayton Kershaw a couple years ago, and then before that, Justin Verlander in the American League. Yeah, I'm, um, So he's MVP to me. Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to say Jacob DeGrom wins the MVP position player, though. I'm going to go Freddie Freeman, and that hurt every inch of my body to say because Freddie yeah. Freeman is to the, me, he's number two. the pinnacle of National League East killer. Mm-hmm. He's just he's great. Uh, any other team not named the Braves. Um, but also a name to look out for, and not that you haven't been looking out for, it's Matt Carpenter. Yeah. He's on an absolute tear. He is a machine. I think if he keeps this up and Freeman keeps the level he's playing at, I think Carpenter surpasses him. I don't think Carpenter can stay on cloud nine the entire time, so I'm going to go with uh, Freddie Freeman as my position player. But overall, I'm going to give it to Jacob DeGrom. Our last award pick is for American League MVP, and I think in this category too we have three guys that stand out to me, maybe four, that in a quote-unquote typical year would be a runaway for the American League MVP award. But it also speaks to what we discussed earlier in the show when we were talking about some of the divisional races in baseball where the top talent in the American League is so high that it, it really is staggering and something we haven't seen before where we have four or five teams that are the best in the American League. And I think we have three or four players that are maybe the best in baseball and the best of this generation all playing at the same time in the American League. And for me... I was really pulling for Mike Trout to be the MVP winner because I feel he's been snubbed in recent years and he doesn't get the type of respect he deserves as a generational talent and one of the greatest players of all time already at age 26 or 27, whatever he is. But he is injured. He's missed the last couple of weeks of play. And while he's done that, two other guys have emerged past him, in my opinion, Mookie Betts and my MVP of the American League, Jose Ramirez of the Cleveland Indians. Leads Fangraphs wins above replacement by a half win, 8.2 for Ramirez at this point in the season. He could eclipse 10 at the pace he's going by right now, which has only been done a couple of times since that metric was introduced by Mike Trout and Miguel Cabrera. 37 home runs, 91 runs batted in. He's hitting 298. He gets on four times out of 10, 410 on base percentage. And his fielding is among the best in the American League. Matt Chapman is obviously the best third baseman defensively in the AL, but Jose Ramirez is right there with him. He also gives you versatility. The guy can play second base. He can play the outfield. He is my American League MVP. This is so difficult. And I think just to uh, reiterate what you said, Brandon, quick question for you. If you take your the five top AL MVP candidates and stick them with the top five NL MVP candidates and pool them into one giant pool of 10 candidates and rank them one through 10. Do you think an NL player reaches the top five? No, I would go Ramirez, Betts, Trout, Lindor, JD Martinez. Uh, And I'm going to go the one that you said at two, I'm going to put at one. I think Mookie Betts is going to be your AL MVP uh, on a powerhouse team, on a just absolute powerhouse of a team. I think Mookie Betts can... Dude's hitting 340. Right now. He's hitting 340. He's a, just about below eight win, uh, wins above replacement. Um, 
he's second on on base percentage, I think, and slugging percentage. There's nothing this dude can't do. I think it's about time the Mookie Betts gets the award.